up on today's show, Rebecca Schultz, the latest to enter the UCP leadership race. Finance in the fields. We're going to talk about the fact that a lot of farmland in Alberta is ending up in the hands of investors. Still keeping a close eye on rising waters in Alberta. We'll find out why. And a wild policy in the UK, a plan to ship refugees to Rwanda. We now have eight entrants into the UCP leadership race, the latest coming yesterday in the form of Calgary Shaw MLA Rebecca Schultz. Um, as she announced yesterday, she is running for the leadership. Of course, um, she was in the cabinet. She was Minister of Children's Services dating back to April of 2019. And we are delighted that she has time to join us this morning. Um, Ms. Schultz, thanks so much for your time. I, I do appreciate you joining us today. Hi, Shay. It's great to be on here as always. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, not bad staying dry. How about you? Yeah, the same. <laughs> it's just been crazy. Um, of course, now let's just get right into it. You're, you're, you're looking to lead a party that we all know, there's no doubt, is divided. I mean, that's how we got into this situation, deeply divided along several different lines. So let's just put out the big picture, the elevator picture. What is your vision for this party if you're elected leader? And it's up to you to set the course of the UCP into the next election. Mm-hmm. Well, and Shay, really why I want to do this is because I do believe in the future of our party and our province. I know that we need a leader who will bring our party members, but also Albertans, back to the decision-making table, uh, provide competent and disciplined leadership. You know, when it comes to my approach, Shay, it's that I am unwavering in conservative values, but I also make decisions with compassion and common sense. And I think that that's something Albertans want to see. I think they also want to see some humility in their government, right? Not just hear mm-hmm. people talk about it. Um, and I'm not afraid to stand up and fight for Alberta, which is what I hear a lot, whether that's here in Calgary or right across the province. And I have a track record on that when it comes to the child care deal. We didn't sign the first agreement that they split across the table. We fought very hard to get a deal that worked for Albertans based on the feedback and what they were telling us. So, you know, yes, we have to unite the party. And I think you know, really how I feel is we need to stop vilifying each other and remember uh, in the Conservative Party that our opponent is the NDP in 2023. You mentioned Conservative values and you will not compromise Conservative values. What are Conservative values in 2022? I think even within your party, if you asked different people what are Conservative values, you'd get very different answers. And Jason Kenney's view of Conservative values are not the same as some of the people in the party that ended up being kicked out or leaving because their values didn't feel represented by the Premier. So what are these Conservative values you won't compromise? You know, first and foremost, it's fiscal responsibility. And I know that kind of sounds like a buzz word, but like what does a balanced budget actually yep. mean for families? It means that if we have a strong economy and people are working, we have jobs, we have hope, we have optimism once again. I mean, right now things are working. Our government did a number of things very well. Our unemployment rate is the lowest it's been since 2015. There are thousands of jobs being created every single day. And that is positive. We're diversifying the economy. Why do we want that? It's because that is what enables us to invest in things that matter uh, to everyday Albertans, like healthcare and education, right? We want to make sure that we have family doctors when we need them. We want to make sure that our kids have an excellent education. Um, you know, unwavering in that fiscal responsibility, the balanced budget this year uh, was great news for Albertans. Um, and so, you know, I think it means we don't have to... Um, step aside from those values. But I do think what I hear most often, Shay, is it's not even the decisions that were being made. Albertans want to see a different tone. Yeah. And that will help us regain their trust as we move forward. 
That's the question I wanted to ask. The situation the UCP finds itself in now with an ousted premier, um, uh, would it be fair to say then that you don't think it's necessarily a result of policy, as the premier says it is, people who are angry over COVID actions and things like that. That's what brought down his leadership. Um, His critics say, no, 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 it's the tone. It's the way that the leadership was conducted. It's the way the party operated and the fact we didn't feel hurt. So you agree with them? It was more the tone of the leadership rather than the policy of the party? You know, I think, obviously, um, things like COVID are divisive when it comes to policy. I think that any decision a government makes, there are going to be people that support it and people that disagree. That is normal. That is what happens, um, you know, at any time, not just during COVID. But what I do hear consistently uh, is, in fact, that people wanted a different tone, especially during COVID, but not just during COVID. That when mistakes were made, they want uh, a government that will stand up and say, you know what, we didn't get that one quite right. And we're going to show you that we can do this differently. Um, You know, I take as an example, yesterday, our launch announcement was in my home constituency of Calgary Shaw. There were people there that had a wide variety of views on all policies, uh, not just COVID, um, but they were there to support me. They know that I respect their views. We need to continue to respect the different views that people have. People want to see freedom. They want a government that will fight for them against the federal government, uh, but that will be honest and show humility. And I think we can do that. I know we can. Um and the obvious question then is, why didn't you? You've been at the table since 2019. You've been a cabinet member. I mean, not just in caucus, you've been a cabinet member seated at the table of cabinet since 2019. Um, why do you think this is something you can say now, but you didn't say up until last month? Well, and I would say this. I mean, sitting at the cabinet table, obviously, we are a team, and I'm proud of that team. And like I said I am proud of a lot of the decisions that we made. We have an excellent track record, especially when it comes to economic growth. We have a lot to be proud of right now. Um, People are optimistic. There is hope. Um, There are ways to voice your opinion, though, without going to the media. And that's part of being a team player. It's part of being part like a a disciplined team. Um, I think we need that discipline. We have to have those discussions. But, you know, I'm not one to necessarily have those discussions on the front page of the paper because it's not fair to my team. That said, my, I think you know, I mean, we have had a different approach. I'm often not, um, you know, having disagreements with people on Twitter. My office has an excellent relationship with media. Anybody who called me on COVID policy in my um, office, I called them back. I wanted to hear their views. Whether or not they were the same as mine, they're equally important. And I think, you know, our party members really want to know that each and every person has a voice, that their views, while differing, are still respected and valued, even though we may not all disagree, and we're going to make decisions at different times that people disagree with. Um, as leader, you're right. You're going to make decisions that people don't agree with. Part of the problem, of course, that plagued the, the, the current leader and outgoing premier is the fact that he could not keep the party together, even as those unpopular decisions had to be made like they do in all governments. How do you do that? How do you avoid that trap of saying, you know what, I know there's people in this party that aren't going to agree with me, but this is how I'm going to keep them on board and keep everybody pulling on the rope in the same direction so we don't fall apart and end up in the same position three years from now? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when I say it's time to get our party members back to this decision-making table, you know, that includes our team. We have an amazing team of MLAs who are hardworking, who are exceptionally talented right across this province. We have volunteers and constituency association 
uh, boards right across the province that want to pull together, want to stay united, and want to essentially take on the NDP in 2023 and make sure that we can continue our economic growth. Um, you know, I do believe that's possible. I think people want to feel heard. Um, and that's part of my commitment is to travel to every single constituency in this province, knock on doors, make phone calls, meet with the constituency association presidents, boards, our volunteers in every single one of the constituencies across this province to make sure that people know that they're heard. Um, you talk about the tone and the fighting and the feuding on Twitter and things like that. Situations like the war room, um, some of the press people, the way that they've handled themselves. Would you change the tone of the government overall? Like, for example, let's talk about the war room. Does it persist? Does it continue? Or is that something that would be wrapped up under your leadership? You know, I, I haven't rolled out my specific policies just yet. I do think we have to continue to fight for our energy sector while we also see amazing growth in other sectors from manufacturing, egg, technology, um, film and television. We have a great story to tell here in Alberta. Um, I do think that, you know, we can't lose sight of that, but I do think we can listen to Albertans say, hey, you know what? I hear you. You want to mm-hmm. see a different tone. You want to see a government that shows humility, not just talks about it. Uh, you want someone who's straight up with you. Uh, you know, yesterday, um, one of the things I said was, you know, people don't want their officials talking to them like bureaucrats. They, they want to be heard. They want to know that they're understood and that they're valued. Um, and I think that's part of shifting the tone. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, I'm out of time, but we'll chat again. I do appreciate you joining us this morning. Well, thank you. My pleasure. That is Rebecca Schultz, who is a UCP leadership candidate, one of eight now, MLA for Calgary Shaw, former Children's Services Minister. Just a couple of quick texts here. Uh, John says, Shay, I'm taking out a UCP membership to vote for Rebecca Schultz. I've been a supporter since listening to her presentation on the $10 daycare when Justin Trudeau, Christian Freeland, Jason Kenney each spoke. She was the only one of the four that sounded like she had passion for the people of Alberta. The next text, same old, same old. And another one says, I'm proud of my team. She just lost me. So um, that's that's what she's facing. That's what they're all facing. And we'll see who comes out ahead at the end. Right now, though, an interesting discussion. This is going to be very interesting, I think, for a lot of listeners. We're going to be talking about a new report just out by the Parkland Institute that is taking a look at what they call the financialization of farmland in Alberta. And the report says there is a crisis brewing in our province. Investors buying up farmland, making it more expensive for farmers. Um, We're seeing more tenant farming where people are renting farmland. And if you want to get into the industry, if you want to become a new farmer, well, it's becoming cost prohibitive. A lot of, you know, warning signs on the horizon here. So we're going to speak now with Catherine Ask, who is the report author, a settler and a farm worker. And we're going to find out exactly what's going on here. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's just... uh, define the terms here that we're talking about. Alberta's farmland is being financialized. Explain to us what that means. Right, totally. Um, So the financialization of farmland simply refers to the increased role of financial actors, so like investors and and lenders, banks, you know, FCC, uh, institutions, uh, motives and markets in, in shaping diverse parts of our lives, and in this case, um, the, the farmland market. What's causing it? Why are we seeing this happen? And how much are we seeing it happen? Is it, is it escalating? Is it happening more and more? Is this a trend that's continuing? 
Right. It's absolutely a trend that's continuing. It's, it's happening around the world. Basically, uh, you know, ever since the 2008 financial crash, investors around the world of diverse types, um, suddenly the stability of farmland and its, you know, slow, steady appreciation became appealing. And so they've been buying up it up around the world. It's certainly something that's happening in Alberta. Um, uh, when I spoke to farmers, I spoke to uh, 52 folks across the province, grain and oilseed farmers, and I asked them, you know, why do you think why do you think farmland prices are getting so high? Yeah. And a lot of them would talk about, you know, supply demand, that sort of thing. You know, they aren't making it anymore. But really, what my report is trying to show is there's actually something more kind of political going on. Uh, decisions are being made that are allowing uh, investors to buy farmland in Alberta. It seems like a small number of acres so far relative to the 50 million across the province, but they have deep pockets and they can pay more than, than farmers can. And, and so every time they purchase a quarter section, um, it sets a new standard and if farmers can't keep up and they're getting, you know, they're, they're, they're getting kicked off the land and only the largest farms are able to keep buying. So, yeah, let's talk about that. First of all, if you want to be uh, someone new to the industry, if you want to get into farming, it becomes cost prohibitive at some point where these large, large investors are buying up the land, driving up the price, and it just becomes out of reach, right? Oh, abs- absolutely. I mean, farmers told me again and again that there's no way you can make it in the in the grain industry. This is what I was looking at, unless you come from a from a family farm, you know, and you've got some kind of support you've got you know uh parents with some land that you can use as equity to get a loan from the bank or what have you but but anybody else who's getting started in farming in alberta they're not getting into the commodity industry they're not getting into dairy you know they're 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 most likely getting into some form of like small scale direct marketed um stuff because it's it's impossible otherwise and so we're we're going headlong into a crisis of generational renewal we we all know the average age of farmers is is well into the 50s um we need more farmers on the land. We, we need to revitalize our rural areas, but that's not going to be possible with these sky-high land prices and the disconnection between the productive value of land, that is how much can you make on it through farming, and how much it costs on the market. So that's an interesting point, because when you've got uh, these large groups that you know aren't really tied to the land beyond the financial investment, and then they're hiring you know rental farmers or tenant farmers to come in and work the land, yeah. they're not really tied to the land, that that, I don't know if you want to call it respect, but that, that, that bond with the land isn't there anymore, right? No, that's exactly right. I mean, you have, you literally have uh, rich folks in Toronto, or you have pension plans, or you have, you know, Kintera Capital Corps, or whatever it is. They don't, they're not even in Alberta at all often, um, who, who are owning this land for a pure financial investment. They don't have to care what happens on the ground there. They don't care about any kind of ecological or social metrics. Um, and, and part of the part of the problem here is that you know, and and rural folks in Alberta have seen this happening for a long, long time. Rural areas are getting hollowed out. There's not the same population base. There's not the same vibrancy there used to be, and and that's a huge problem. So the end result, I mean, if this continues for another five years, ten years, fifty years, where do we end up? <clears throat> well. I think uh, we're going to end up with a lot more farmers renting in much more precarious economic situations. They're, you know, when farmers rent, they're disconnected from the long-term health of the land. It limits the way that they can produce. And I think that in light of what's coming our way with climate change, with more volatile weather, with farmers, you know, um, um, already experiencing those intense impacts, uh, it's going to put us in a really dangerous position. Um, that said, I just want to make this point that there's nothing inevitable about where right. we're going. And, and this is the point, right? There are policy changes that we could push for that could change things. We could limit 
uh, investors' ability to buy farmland. We could we could um, we could make it illegal altogether. Uh, there are various things that can be done, so we just need to organize ourselves and, and push for some policy change. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. It's not like it, it's just a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen, but it's going to take a lot of work. And I, this is the first time I've heard of it, Catherine. I don't know if it's if anybody is even working on you know addressing that or even sees it as a problem. To be honest with you. Right. Well, what I can tell you is that certainly on the ground, the farmers I spoke sure. to had all heard of it. Um, uh, but I agree, it's not something that has really like burst into the public no. sphere yet. Last or year, Bill Gates. Yeah, yeah, sure. Last year, last year it came to light, um, and I remember a bunch of my friends talking to me about this. It, it, like it, it really spun around uh, in the news that Bill Gates owned, uh, you know, owns close to two hundred fifty thousand acres of farmland across the U.S. Well. Um, in Canada, a man named Robert Angelic owns just about that much in Saskatchewan alone, an Albertan man, actually. Um, the reality in Canada is that it's absolutely happening. It's been happening for over a decade now. Um, but provincial governments have not been tracking and, and mapping the trend. Um, so it's kind of been up to public researchers like myself to, to try and uh, pay attention. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, and maybe uh, reports like this will will bring that to light. Certainly did for me. Uh, Catherine, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Very interesting. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. Have a good day. You too. That is Catherine Ask, who is uh, the author of the report, Finance in the Fields, Investors, Lenders, Farmers, and the Future of Farmland in Alberta. And, you know, she makes a really good point is, you know, you have more and more of this investment from people who aren't aren't even here, right? I mean, they're just investing in the land, recognizing that it's a good, stable, long-term investment, but then you've got the land rented out and it just, you know, if you want to be the small family farmer, is that is that something that's disappearing in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and in other places, which, you know, is sort of the backbone of, of many, many, many communities in uh, in this part of the world. So... Right, so, as we were talking about earlier this morning, it looks like, at this point anyway, people breathing a sigh of relief when it comes to the flooding situation, especially around southern Alberta. But, but, it's important to stress, it's not over just yet. It's kind of interesting. It looks like the rainfall warnings and and uh, some of those things that have been in place for a couple of days now uh, will start to be lifted later today. The rain definitely slowing down outside of the studios here in Edmonton. Um, it's expected the elbow will peak this morning, the bow sometime this afternoon, but that's this peak. Could there be other peaks? I mean, everybody's being very careful to say there's still lots of things that are being monitored. So let's get some details on um, exactly what the experts are keeping an eye on and what could potentially cause a problem and how we're feeling about things now. We're going to chat with Matthew Chernos, who's a hydrologist with McDonald Hydrology Consultants. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So in a situation like this, like I say, everything that I'm seeing this morning coming out from the different, you know, emergency management agencies and Environment Canada and all this sort of stuff saying, you know what, it looks like we're in pretty good shape right now. So so what are experts monitoring? What are you keeping an eye on at this point in the game? Yeah, well, I mean, so flooding typically in the, you know, in this part of the world happens when we have a whole bunch of snow melt. So that snow melt period, which is, you know, for us, May and June, uh, when that coincides with the really big rainfall event. So, you know, we've we've kind of had that over the last couple of days. Uh, what we've been a little bit fortunate of is uh, that a lot of that has, you know, come in with pretty cold temperatures. So what that means is we haven't 
you know, had as much snow melt as maybe we would have had if it came in a lot warmer. And then on top of that, yeah, parts of our watersheds actually got snow instead of rain. Yeah. So I'm looking at the snow pillow up in the elbow. We got about what would be about 50 millimeters of precip that actually fell as snow. So, you know, so much that they've closed Highway 40 for a couple extra days. So coming for the next couple of days, it is probably going to warm up. And so that snow that, you know, uh, is has accumulated in the mountains, that's going to slowly melt out. Uh, as you said, it looks like, you know, the, the peaks of the hydrographs are kind of, you know, trickling in over the next 12 to 24 hours. But they're probably going to stay pretty high for the next couple of days because that snow is going to take a little while to melt. Um, and then with that, the other thing that we want to look at, I guess, is that there's probably going to be some thunderstorms and some more rain that comes in. So probably nothing of the intensity that we've seen the last couple of days. But the ground's already really wet, and we have a lot of snow melt. So probably going to stay, the rivers are probably going to stay pretty high for a while. Yeah, but it sounds like at this point, Matthew, or at least what we're hearing, if things hold as we're expecting them to, they're going to be high, but it's not going to be catastrophic, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. Good to hear. Okay, now, um, when you take a look at what's going on in the mountains, uh, the, the potential for that snowpack, and I know people were keeping a close eye on that, we're monitoring the rain in the cities where we live, but... You know, this stuff, what's happening in the mountains seems to be more important to some of the experts. Is there a possibility that that slow melt that we're all happy to see happening changes? Could that, I mean, could things, you know, because there seems to be a lot of hesitation to say, oh, it's all good, we're out of the woods. It's sort of like, but things could change. What could change? Yeah, I mean, you know, this, we're, I guess, I guess there's two things there. So it is really important to recognize that, um, in this part of the world, whether, you know, it's Calgary or Edmonton or, you know, Red Deer, all our water essentially comes from west of us. Yeah. You know, so so what happens, you know, in, you know, the Bragg Creeks and Banffs and, and um, Jaspers of the of the world, that's, you know, that's really what, what comes, flows downhill to us. So, so, you know, if we get a bunch of thunderstorms, you know, in Calgary, that's, you know, that's, not great for, you know, localized floodings and things like that. But really what we're concerned about is, you know, what's happening west of us. So, the, you know, the snow is going gonna, is gonna to melt over the next couple of days. Um, what really could, you know, set us off for, for kind of more higher risk is, you know, if we started to get some high-intensity thunderstorms west of us in the foothills, that would, you know, you know bring a level of, of risk, I guess, up a little bit. There's yeah. also, you know, the ground is saturated, so there's localized events too, right? Like, you, you know, I, I live on top of a hill in Calgary and my neighbor's um, basement, you know, her foundation is cracked and, you know, she's been getting some seepage in. So it's, you know, local groundwater levels can also play a role, even if, you know, your river isn't overflowing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that. We, uh, we, we heard from David Phillips, who's a senior climatologist with Environment Canada, talking about the fact that this could be a billion dollar event because we've had such dry conditions in this part of the world for so long. Rain like this, you know, if it doesn't cause catastrophic flooding and all the rest can really make a difference, especially if you're, you know, a farmer or a producer of some kind or another, this could be a turnaround event. I mean, did we get the kind of rain, the kind of precipitation that we needed from this event, or was there something that could have gone better? Yeah. So um, in, in Alberta, um, really, you know, the amount of water is, is important, but what what we struggle with the most is the timing of right, the water. Yeah. And so, you know, getting a lot of water in June only really helps us in August and September when we really, you know, get those really, really dry conditions if we're able to store it. And so, you know, we've had to lower the reservoirs 
uh, both the Ghost and the Glenmore, um, you know, quite a bit over the last little bit, just, you know, so we had a, an extra margin of error for, you know, if, if the flood, if the floods came in higher or the rainfall got in higher, but, you know, pretty soon we're going to have to pivot to start refilling those. So we have enough storage for irrigators in the late summer. Okay. So, uh, I guess we never stop monitoring conditions and saying, oh, we don't have anything to worry about. I mean, anything can happen at any time. But in terms of this event, how much longer are you keeping an eye on things? I know there's a system that might be on the way for June 20th in Calgary that they're concerned about. That's why the state of emergency is remaining. So, I mean, what's the window here that you're watching? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's there's folks that have their full-time jobs monitoring this stuff. Yeah. And so they, they probably go to sleep with, flood hydrographs in their in their heads but i mean really you know um in in science in the scientific community we call it antecedent conditions is kind of a big driver for floods so really that is you know the the conditions prior to a big rainfall event and so you know right now we have high antecedent conditions you know the the waters or the you know there's a lot of water in the soil everything's saturated so it doesn't take as much for the next event. And so that was kind of what we saw, not in 2013, but in 2005, we had kind of three, um, not super floods, but we had, you know, people had the elbow broke its banks, that sort of stuff. So, you know, those were kind of consecutive weeks of, of you know, a couple big rainfall events. So, you know, certainly until until we get a good run, kind of a yeah. week of really, really nice weather, I, I think folks are going to be, you know, very cautious about, and keeping reservoir levels low and, you know, keeping keeping a really close eye on the forecast. Makes sense. Matthew, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. That's Matthew Chernos, who is a hydrologist with McDonald Hydrology Consultants. All right, we're going to shift gears and... Uh, Take a look at a situation developing overseas. Across the pond, as they say in the UK, it is a story that is fascinating to me. It is remarkable. It's been bouncing around throughout the court system there for a while now. It came to a head yesterday when uh, the UK government put a bunch of would-be refugees on a plane and were going to fly them to Rwanda. Now, at the last minute, the European Union High Commission intervened and said no. Um, but it's it, basically what it is... Uh, is a is a is a plan that the British government has come up with to deal with the ongoing refugee situation they've been facing channel crossings people you know many people have died trying to cha- cross the channel and they've worked out a deal with Rwanda to the tune of 150 million dollars up front where when these people get here we're going to put them on a plane and we're going to send them to you and Rwanda's going to deal with them it's craziness. So this was shut down in the European High Commission, but the British government this morning came out and said, fine, okay, but we're continuing to organize more flights to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. The, the last-minute court judgment grounded the plane that was to take off yesterday. But the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, said, quote, preparations for the next flight begin now, despite the rulings that none of the migrants earmarked for deportation could be sent to the East African country. They signed this deal back in April. Um, And what it says is migrants who arrive in the UK as stowaways or on small boats will be sent to Rwanda. Their asylum claims will be processed there. And if they're successful, they get to stay in Rwanda, but they will not be sent back to Britain. Now, there are a number of groups, a ton of groups uh, that are very, 
very concerned about this, openly critical, trying to use legal means to stop this. Not all that effective thus far. We'll see if that continues. Lots more legal battles looming. But let's get uh, into this discussion with Audrey Macklin, who's a professor and a chair of human rights law at the University of Toronto. Audrey, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. First of all, when I came across this story, I was like, what? Is this completely unheard of? Has this been tried before? Actually, it was attempted by Israel and Denmark, and both of them eventually had to abandon the project because they were untenable. Okay, now, UK forging ahead. As I said, the plan is, you know, we're, we're working on planning the next flight right now. We're not taking this setback sitting down. Um, just, I think the, the concerns around this plan seem rather self-evident, but what, what, what stands out to you? What is your primary focus and, and why, why you don't think this should be happening? Well, to give a proper answer, let me just back up and explain a little bit about the, how the system works. Perfect. So um, the UK, like Canada and 180 other countries, signed the Refugee Convention many years ago. It promised in signing it that if people showed up at the border who met the definition of a refugee, those people wouldn't be sent back to their country of origin. Nobody forced the UK to ever sign the convention. They did it utterly voluntarily. So this is a promise that the UK has made. But it turns out that the UK, like many other countries, doesn't actually want to admit refugees. So they have been trying to find ways to avoid that legal obligation, avoid meeting their promise. So what, one of the things they said is, well, it's true the convention says we can't send them back to their country of origin if they'd be persecuted there, but it doesn't say anything about sending them somewhere else. Hmm. So that's the origin of this idea. Now, to understand it in context, though, you have to know that over 85% of the world's refugees are in the global south. They are in continents like Africa, South America, Asia, 85%. So only 15% make it to what we call the global north, wealthy countries in, the Euro- in Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand. So a tiny number make it there, but these wealthy countries, they don't want them. So what UK is trying to do is, in effect, sell refugees to a poor country like Rwanda, which is in a region that already hosts 85%. Now, the, the reason they give for this is, well, we don't want people who have been, you know, on these boats and smuggled in, you know, and all of that. But the other thing to realize is that the U.K. has made it impossible for a refugee to legally travel to the U.K. So when they say these people are arriving illegally or they're by smugglers or they're being trafficked, that's because the U.K. has made it Ill- impossible for them to arrive through any other means. So if they really wanted to put an end to what their concern is about smuggling or trafficking... All they have to do is create meaningful legal pathways for refugees to reach the UK. Now, you mentioned, you know, the the UN Convention and and the legality surrounding this. It's gone through UK courts who have refused to say, no, you can't do this. Because like you say, you know, that convention says they won't be sent back to their country of origin. But nobody thought to say, but you can't send them to a third country either. And that seems to be where the UK is making their plan stand. Um, It's already won a number of times in UK courts, right? I mean, legally, they had some success around this. Not exactly. Um, So I'll back up in two ways. One, even though the convention doesn't mention this idea of a third country, that doesn't mean that doing it, sending someone off to a third country like Rwanda, is actually consistent with the purpose and the spirit. But is it illegal, I guess is the argument. In in other words, it's not obvious that it's legal at all. But the other piece is that these courts we're talking about have not actually ruled yet on the legality 
of the UK-Rwanda deal, because that actually takes quite a lot of time. You can imagine you have to get together the legal arguments and the witnesses and the evidence. It's a slow process. So what the courts have said in these cases is we will not stop the implementation of this law pending those trials and outcomes. So what they're saying is, it's true, this may turn out to be yep. illegal, we don't know, but until it is determined, that is, until the legality is determined in a proper court hearing trial judgment, we'll just let the process go ahead. We'll let it be implemented. And that's what two British courts said was okay, but the European Court of Human Rights said was not. The European Court of Human Rights essentially issued what's called an injunction, said, no, you cannot implement this right. because its legality is so uncertain. And the harm that you will do to those people who are subject to it can't be repaired. Kate, to back up one step, um, the decision that the the UK courts are making, like you're saying, they're not coming down on the legality of the law on its own, but they are looking at each individual case. And that flight had uh, far fewer people on it than was originally planned. So that's the remedy they seem to be looking at, correct? Um, well, I think the individualized approach has been used by individual lawyers representing individual right. people, right? But so they're trying, you know, and there are ways in which you can argue about a particular individual. But um, the bigger challenge is this whole scheme is unlawful. It's not just unlawful with respect to a, a handful of people that you can name and identify. The whole scheme itself is unlawful. And that's what has yet to be determined. Other countries watching this closely, you mentioned Israel, you mentioned Denmark. I, I mean, this this situation is something that a lot of European countries are dealing with, and, and they're watching the outcome of this carefully, right? Absolutely. And when I say, when you say dealing with it, I, again, I feel I have to remind everybody sure. that 85% of the world's refugees are in yep. countries of the global south. Fair enough. Absolutely. Um, is the concern then that if the court does ultimately rule that this is a, a legal maneuver and allows it to go ahead, we'll see other countries jump in and do the same I thing? Think, yeah, that's very possible. It is an incredible situation. Audrey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. That is Audrey Macklin, who is a professor and chair of human rights law at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.